Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to Random Interesting Facts. The podcast about everything and nothing. With your host, 42. This week's topic is laughter. So let's dive right in with fact number one. Laughter is rarely about humour. Humour's dictionary definition is listed as the ability to find things funny or the quality of being funny. But humour is hard to pin down, and it's very much a matter of taste. What one person considers funny, another will find tedious, or most often nowadays, offensive. Having a sense of humour is highly regarded as a positive character trait in the West, whereas in the East, specifically China, a sense of humour can be controversial and should be reserved for professionals, such as comics. Many a scientist and philosopher have tried to understand why people laugh over the centuries, but no one's come up with a conclusive answer. Plato and Aristotle thought people laughed to feel superior. <laughs> Freud believed they'd do it for what's called psychic relief. Surprisingly for Freud, it was nothing to do with incest this time. These theories capture part of what makes us laugh, but not the whole. None of them explain stuff like slapstick, for instance, or really delve into the social context of laughter. It's true that things we find funny often make us laugh, but they're more likely to just prompt a smile or a wry nod. And you might be surprised to learn that laughter, like actual laugh-out-loud laughter, more often than not, has nothing to do with humour at all. At least that's what I tell myself when no one laughs at my jokes. When laughter is about humour, the circumstances around it have far more impact on whether we laugh than the joke itself. Mark Twain famously said, humour is tragedy plus time. And this was tested in the modern day, when Hurricane Sandy, the most terrifying and destructive storm of 2012, was brewing over the Atlantic. 
Scientists lifted free tweets from a Twitter account called at a Hurricane Sandy, which had popped up pretending to be the hurricane. Spewing all caps invective, it taunted people in its path, called a milder hurricane a basic bitch, and quickly gained 180,000 followers. The researchers got people to rate the tweets at different points as the storm progressed. Their popularity spiked the day before the storm hit, and then dropped when millions were without power and lives had been lost. Then peaked again 36 days later, before dwindling to nothing. So then, the humour factor seemed greatest when the threat to human life was impending but not inevitable, and again when enough time had elapsed for the tragedy to be less visceral but still relevant. But the thing is with internet humour, most people don't actually laugh at it. They just scroll through it alone, and it might tickle them slightly. But even if we find something humorous, we usually don't laugh out loud. So that begs the question, what in life does make us laugh if it's not banal internet humour? What we do know is that laughter means the very same thing to people throughout the world. <laughs> Unlike the different ways that we signify agreement, thanks, affection, and almost every other emotion across different cultures. This was proved in a recent study, where participants from 24 different cultures had to listen to two people laughing together and guess whether they were friends or strangers simply by the way they shared a laugh. <laughs> Participants' success rates were equally high across all cultures. Laughter can also be hierarchical, with high-status individuals laughing differently from low-status ones when they're together. Higher-status people rarely snigger and are much more likely to laugh louder than their lower-status counterparts. <laughs> what makes us laugh is also heavily influenced by our peers, Spontaneous laughter is really infectious. <laughs> it's hard not to join in if someone in the vicinity is laughing already. And sometimes forced laughter can metamorphosize into genuine laughter if several people fake laugh together. But then we return to our original point. None of this has anything to do with humor. Many older studies of laughter and humour fail to notice that spontaneous and social laughter are not the same thing. They're actually associated with entirely different parts of the brain. So-called Duchenne, or spontaneous laughter, comes from our brainstem, the prehistoric part most closely connected to our animal ancestry, along with the limbic system which controls our emotions. It's triggered in babies by things like peekaboo or being tickled and by non-threatening surprises for adults, which can take the form of a joke. Non-Duchenne laughter, on the other hand, is an imitation of spontaneous laughter, thought to have appeared far later in the human evolution timeline. It's deployed as a social signal and it has nothing to do with humour at all, it originates in the voluntary premotor area of the frontal cortex. Which is why you feel it necessary to let out a pathetically fake laugh 
when your boss regales you with an anecdote about the latest telesales symposium, which for some reason your boss thinks is genuinely hilarious. Of course, in that situation, it doesn't matter if your laugh is fake or not, because in social situations, humans have learned to use non-Duchenne laughter to appease their superiors. Your boss doesn't actually care whether you think it's funny, just so long as you play along to reaffirm the office hierarchy. We also use non-Duchenne laughter to de-escalate situations, signal friendliness, and deflect embarrassment. In its darker forms, it's used to exclude people from a clique, deride or demean them, or to enforce conformity. Even evil laughter between psychopaths <laughs> has its place in signalling solidarity. All of which goes to show that laughter rarely has anything to do with humour. And even when it does, humour alone is unlikely to actually make you laugh out loud. Just think about it, when was the last time you genuinely laughed out loud at an internet meme, rather than the far more common, slightly exaggerated exhalation of air from your nasal passage? So, the next time you're on a date and your sweetheart doesn't laugh at your jokes, don't take it too personally, she might just not be as evolved as you. But whatever you do, don't tell her that. Next up, moments from history. Where each week we look back at one particularly odd moment from the past. In this episode, it's the beach that keeps on giving free Lego. On the 13th of February 1997, the 58,000-ton German cargo ship Tokyo Express was making its way from the English Channel out into the Atlantic Ocean, 20 miles off the Cornish coast, when it was battered by a series of freak 30-foot waves. It was heading from Rotterdam to Nova Scotia, stacked high with 2,800 shipping containers. One wave hit the ship so hard it listed 60 degrees one way and swung back almost as far the other way, shedding 62 containers into the sea in the process. The only three still floating when help arrived contained garden tools, furniture and beer, which sounds suspiciously like a checklist for surviving being marooned on a desert island, so that's handy. The rest sank to the bottom of the Atlantic, where they were presumed to have collapsed and spewed their cargo into the sea. We know that one of them certainly did, because the contents have been washing up on Cornwall's beaches ever since. And it was a shipment of nearly 5 million Lego pieces, headed to New York. In one of those strange coincidences that makes it hard not to believe there's a supreme being having a laugh up there, much of it was aqua-themed, including 97,500 tiny grey plastic scuba tanks, 26,000 minuscule yellow life preservers, and more than 200,000 teeny pairs of red, black or blue divers flippers. There were whole Lego kits of divers, aquanauts, and pirates, along with 26,400 
brown ship rigging nets, 13,000 spear guns, and 4,200 black octopuses. There were also more than 300,000 daisies, 33,000 dragons, and other miscellaneous non-sea-themed pieces. Almost immediately, LEGO began washing ashore. According to a LEGO spokesperson at the time, the first wave of LEGO pieces that found their way onto the beach were identical, and must have been some of the thousands of dragons on their way to America. Much to the delight of local children, who took the opportunity to prove that capitalism can begin at any age, they began collecting and selling plastic dragons by the bucket load to anyone who would buy them. But whether demand matched supply is unknown. The dragons gifted to Cornwall by the freak wave were actually still the property of the Lego group who could have prosecuted the young entrepreneurs for stealing. But Lego sensibly waived their rights, saying at the time, we're very happy for people to keep what they have found, but please wash it thoroughly before giving it to children. They didn't offer any useful advice on how to avoid stepping on Lego pieces though. When the BBC revisited the story some 17 years later, a Lego spokesperson was keen to distance the company from the millions of tiny plastic ocean pollutants, saying that the Tokyo Express incident was of course very unfortunate, however this had nothing to do with the Lego group activities. Which feels a little over-defensive. By that point, I'm sure even climate activists weren't pointing their fingers at Lego, and they can be trigger-happy at the best of times. Various people have been cataloguing the Lego fines over the intervening years, including a local beach cleaning club. One woman, Tracy Williams, set up a Facebook page called Lego Lost at Sea, where people have sent in thousands of photos of their fines over the years. She's even written a book about it. People will write books about any old shit, won't they? 24 years later, Lego pieces are still washing ashore along both the south and west coasts of Cornwall and beyond. There have been verified sightings of spear guns, life preservers and scuba tanks in Pembrokeshire, Wales, and an octopus in County Kerry, Ireland. A scientist called Curtis Ebbesmeyer, who studies ocean surface currents, has been tracking the Lego pieces since the spill happened, and has said they could have drifted 62,000 miles or more by now. The Earth's circumference is only 24,000 miles, so theoretically, they could wash up on any beach in the world. Ocean currents have been compared to rivers, but unlike rivers, they aren't fixed, instead shifting with the seasons. A better comparison is the way that wind moves, and oceanographers can learn a lot by following the route of container spills, and tracking tiny pieces of Lego is definitely a lot more fun than tracking oil spills. Due to the circular flow of Atlantic Ocean currents, most of the Cornish Lego pieces are probably stuck in an endless loop of the North Atlantic, and are unlikely to end up in, say, Hawaii or Peru but a few might occasionally escape. A blue diver's flipper from the Tokyo Express was found a few years ago on a beach at Port Phillip in Melbourne, Australia. So you never know. 
and an octopus matching the ones on the spilled shipping container was found on Galveston Island, Texas. Ebersmeer, you know, the bloke who spends his days searching the seas for tiny little plastic pirates, has also been tracking 28,000 rubber duckies and other bath toys that fell into the Pacific Ocean near the International Dateline when a container fell off a ship in the North Pacific in 1992. After first washing up on the coast of Alaska, flocks of yellow ducks, red beavers and green frogs headed north and then out into the Bering Sea. Most found their way over to Japan before looping back across the Pacific to Alaska again. Following the 6,800 mile loop known as the North Pacific Subpolar Gaia. Much of today's plastic flotsam ends up in convergence zones, which are located at the becalmed heart of Ajaya. The largest one is the Great North Pacific Garbage Patch. You might have heard of that one. It's a great big disgrace. You can't actually see it because only a small portion of the plastic is on the surface, but it's the size of Texas. By 2004, the rubber ducks had completed four circuits of the gyre, gradually disintegrating along the way. Along with the Lego, they will eventually turn into plastic dust and find their way into the food chain. Nice! Perhaps the most macabre account of things washed out to sea was told by author and journalist Gabriel Garcia Marquez, who described a whole circus being swept out to sea off the coast of South Argentina. And the next day, fishermen were catching giraffes and lions in their nets. Sad for the poor drowned beasts. But they provided a substantial meal for the minnows, and at least they won't end up as microplastics in the food chain. Now, we'll take a short break, and soon we'll be back with fact number two. Fact number two. Telling dad jokes can be a sign of brain damage. You'd have thought that the worst thing about dad jokes is your dad laughing uproariously as he tells them. <laughs> Along with wearing slippers, losing all sense of rhythm and generally being an embarrassment in front of your friends. But sometimes compulsive dad joking isn't a laughing matter. There's a form of brain damage that compels the sufferer to keep telling really bad puns. And they find their own quips completely hilarious. The condition is called Witzelschutz, which means joking addiction, and it's caused by damage to the right frontal lobe. It was discovered by German neurologist Otfred Forrester in 1929 and cases have been popping up ever since. One sufferer, for instance, would wake his wife in the middle of the night to force her to listen to him laughing hysterically at his latest puns. <laughs> she eventually told him to stop waking her up and write them down instead. Sensible advice. By the time his long-suffering wife realised this probably wasn't normal behaviour, he'd already filled 50 pages with his terrible jokes. 
She put up with his scatterpun approach for five years before finally dragging him off to the doctor. His gags were even worse than regular dad jokes, including gems such as, how do you cure hunger? Step away from the buffet table. Yeah, they only get weaker after that one, so I won't inflict you with the rest. These were duly written up in a very earnest scientific paper under the heading Examples of Jokes for Case Report Number 1. Wow, that'd make the worst joke book ever. Mind you, they'll probably start showing up in Christmas crackers in a couple of years. The report noted that the sufferer was generally happy, and though he laughed hard at his own weak witticisms, it wasn't in an involuntary or uncontrolled way, he just genuinely seemed to find them excessively funny. His problem was found to be a social one, a lack of inhibition, which meant he kept making borderline offensive comments, or hugging young women for just a little bit too long. Ah yes, we all have an uncle like that. We find it's best just to lock him inside the cupboard at Christmas. There is also a related condition called Moria, where the sufferer doesn't crack jokes all day, but instead is incapable of taking anything seriously. It was discovered in 1888 by Moritz Drasteritz, a German psychiatrist who described the symptoms as euphoric excitement, laughter and silliness without a mood component or appropriate context. It too appears to be caused by damage to the frontal lobes. When one patient was admitted to hospital, he was first diagnosed as just being an incredibly annoying person. He wouldn't give a straight answer to a question, he nicked people's food from their plates, he'd urinate in bed and laughingly claim it was sweat, and he even tried to rip out a toilet at one point because he said he wanted to lie down behind it because he was feeling tired. Sadly, after he died, they discovered he had a massive tumour inside the front of his skull, and that's why he'd been behaving like a bit of a fool. At least people with Moria or Witzelsuch syndromes find what they're laughing at genuinely funny, but there's another condition which leads to bouts of uncontrollable laughter prompted by nothing at all. It's called the Pseudobulbar effect, PBA, and the unprompted outbursts more commonly manifest as crying than laughing, but it can be either. It's believed to be caused by injury to the part of the brain that regulates external expressions or emotion. One 67-year-old victim laughed almost constantly for 20 years, to his family and friends' complete exasperation. Almost anything could set him off, and pretty much the only time he wasn't laughing was when he was asleep. There is some hope for PBA sufferers, as it can be alleviated with drugs. Which is rather ironic, I think, as people usually take drugs, both their prescription and recreational variety, to make them happier, not make them laugh less. I suppose it's true that you can have too much of a good thing. Fact number three. Apes, dolphins, rats and dogs all laugh, and that's not all. When you laugh, the world laughs with you, we're told, and until fairly recently, people believed that world was just a human one. 
So scientists haven't proved that animals have a sense of humour yet, or that they use non-Duchenne laughter to humiliate each other or laugh at us humans ironically as we go about destroying their planet. But nonetheless, we have known for a while now that apes, dolphins, rats and dogs all laugh for some reason. You wouldn't necessarily recognise the noises they make as laughter, but these laugh sounds, or play vocalisations as they're known, are exclusively used for playtime. Rats make an ultrasonic trilling noise, bottlenose dolphins squawk and whistle, dogs give a particular kind of long, loud pant, vervet monkeys purr, and many primates lip-smack, chuckle, pant and squeal. Apes also have a play face with a wide, open, friendly smile, very similar to our own. Scientists realised that rats laugh all the way back in 1999, when researchers at Humboldt University in Germany discovered they make a specific trilling squeak at 50 kilohertz outside of human hearing range when tickled. The rats loved being tickled so much they treat the researcher's hand as a playmate and chased it around the cage, rat giggling as they went. It's thought that laughter developed as a way of keeping play fighting playful, so it didn't escalate into aggression. If you're laughing, the other person knows it's just a game. Which is why I always laugh right in a person's face as I steal his deck chair by the pool. For some reason, I never get a laugh in return. Anyway, the power of laughter goes beyond face-to-face -face play. Hearing dog laughter over a tannoy in a dog shelter, for instance, has a 100% success rate in putting dogs at ease. Within a minute of hearing it, the dog stopped barking and settled down. I'm not quite sure playing the sound of humans laughing over a tannoy in, say, a hospital or a prison, would have quite the same effect. <laughs> yeah, it'd probably just be really creepy. For a while, knowing that apes, rats, dolphins and dogs could laugh seemed to be about as far as human curiosity went and we were happy to just put a lid on that one. But then, a study this year identified a huge number of species, 65 in all, that appear to laugh whilst playing. The vast majority are mammals, but they found bird species too that laugh. And we're not talking kookaburras here, but the Australian magpie and the key parrot in New Zealand. Another interesting connection between animal laughter and the spontaneous humankind is that it's just as infectious for them as it is for us. The scientific name for this is positive emotional contagion which is when laughter spreads from one individual to another, and it's been identified in rats. When one rat hears another laugh, it laughs too and gets excited in anticipation of play, just as human children might. And then when we grow up and turn into adults, the sound of children laughing no longer makes us happy and want to play. It makes us want to cut our ears off. Or is that just me? Anyway. Key parrots also spontaneously laugh and play when they hear key laughter. Kea parrots also spontaneously laugh and play 
when they hear Kaya laughter, or even just a recording of it. And what's particularly interesting is that it's not always an invitation to play, because when they hear other Kayas laughing, they don't just go over to the Kaya that's laughing and start playing with it. Instead, they usually start up games all of their own. Doing solo aerial acrobatics, for instance. Just because they find other Kaya's laughter so infectious. There's a high chance we'll discover other mammals and birds that laugh as well, although no one's been able to identify fish, reptile or insect laughter, it doesn't mean we won't find evidence of it in the future though. If laughing developed to differentiate play from fighting, there's a good chance that they will laugh too. People have certainly clocked playful reptiles and fish. One crocodile was found to pretend it was going to attack its human friend or creep up to it and surprise him, just like it was play fighting. And if laughter is a symptom of sociability, it surely can't be long before we discover that bees laugh as well. Then we will really know that the whole world laughs with you. Or at you. And that was Random Interesting Facts. Thank you for listening, and I'd absolutely love to hear your comments and suggestions for future episodes. And also be sure to like, review, and subscribe. Please do leave a comment if you've learned something new from this episode. And if you have your very own random interesting fact that you're just bursting to share with me, then tweet it using the hashtag RiffPodcast. That's R-I-F podcast. Each week I'll choose my favourite fact from my lovely listeners and shout it out at the end of my next episode. And thanks again for listening.